there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The following is a presentation of the SpeedSport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, celebrating 40 years as a driver, a current owner, whose company has irons in the fire, so to speak, in many different arenas. They seemingly race it all. The NASCAR Cup Series, IndyCar, IMSA, World Supercross, NHRA. Ton of accomplishments, too, Mike. Over 800 starts between three top NASCAR series. First NASCAR Cup Series team in the modern era to have two female tire changers in a Daytona 500. That's pretty cool. Posted nine top ten finishes for the past seven years in both Xfinity and Camping World Truck Series. The first team in NASCAR to pair up a father and daughter in the Camping World Truck Series, and that would be Mike and Chrissy Wallace. That was exciting. Though. At Talladega. Yes, sir. Of all places. All right. Most recently, Rick Ware Racing has confirmed its entry and the superstar driver lineup for this year's Rolex 24 at Daytona. We want to hear all about that and everything else. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Rick Ware. Hi, Rick. Say hi to Mike Wallace. Hey, Mikey, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited, Rick. And, you know, all those things you, you've been continuing to go do in the race world, and you continue to expand. I just read over the weekend where you're going to run the 24-hour race in Daytona. Tell us a little bit about that. And a top 10 finish out in Anaheim in the motocross world. So you got stuff going on everywhere. Happy New Year, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're officially uh, launched our season. Uh, yeah, we're really excited about the – uh, the Rolex deal, you know, we've, you know, we've, we haven't done it on a regular basis, but we've tried to do it on a regular basis. It's, um, it, it, it's a lot of work to make that happen. We didn't run it last year. We opted to run just the sprint series in the GTD class because with the new car coming in, 
man, we had our hands full. So uh, we elected not to do it because it, there's just there's probably more legwork and management for a handful of races with this 24-hour deal than about anything else in motorsports. So we got it put together, and uh, we we were going to announce it 30 days ago, and then it fell apart and back and forth. But we got a really really good lineup. I didn't want to do it unless I felt like we could go and be very competitive. We finished 10th overall, which was uh, very, um, uh, we were very happy with that in 21 and, and fourth, we just, uh, fourth in class and we just missed the podium. I wanted to come back uh, a little bit more prepared and a better lineup and a better car. And we got those things put together and it's, uh, it's a lot of work, but when it's all said and done, it's always great to have done it. Uh, right now we're still in that portion of the preparation where it's like, man, what was I thinking? <laughs> so, um, because is, it's, is that called it's the head examination lot. mode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know that you know the problem at the end of the season, and Mike, you've been doing this for so many decades. You, you know, you you were wide open, and you know uh, there are some you know, so there's some dirt series that run more. I guess a total number of events, but you know, for us to run 39 events in 41 weekends, they're multi-day events and they're, they're pretty comprehensive. It's, it's like running and running and then all of a sudden you just stop and you take a breath, but then the racer and you kind of like, you know what, I've been sitting for a little bit, maybe we could do something. And, and we just tried to, get it put together and sometimes it's really worked out well for us sometimes it's been us a little bit but we're trying to narrow down a little bit and just focus on some of the key series and but it's uh i don't know I, we just love racing well rick you and your wife Lori, for years have uh i call it been very entrepreneurial in, in the motorsports world you're not scared to tackle something new as jeff mentioned in the intro you'd give my daughter chrissy an opportunity back when Nobody would do that, you know, I just uh, much appreciated. But what I think we need to, to find out just a little bit that people can understand why you're so, I call it wide open in a complimentary way. Where did you come from? Where did Rick Ware show up from? And when did you first get involved in motorsports? So uh, I was born in downtown L.A. and um, about seven miles literally from uh, the L.A. Coliseum was kind of home. Um you know, grew up in California doing the usual, uh, you know, grew up during the the height of the, the growth of skateboards, BMX, uh, into motorcycles. Uh, parents got divorced and you know, moved to Texas kind of as an interim. But but before then, I grew up around the drag strips and uh, my father and grandfather um, had a D, I think it was a D modified production, 68 Camaro and just you know I, I grew up at the drag strips and then uh made my first legitimate full pass in a in a drag strip at six years old in a, a go-kart with the, the lights and the time slip and uh you know it it seemed like it was really fast at the time it was probably a 30 second quarter mile or something did you but, just say um, six years old yeah six, six years old six years old we, we were at carlsbad uh in california and um we, we used to go there all the time and my dad used to race there, but we always used to go watch the fuel cars run. We knew the, um, the owner of the track and that's back in the day. They used to run the ABC, uh, wide world of sports, uh, the Superbike challenge. They ran, um, uh, the world motocross deal there in Carlsbad. So it was a big racing kind of hub, uh, sort of kind of like Riverside was, uh, but you know, in the San Diego area. And, uh, during one of the intermissions, um, man, we brought my go-kart and we talked him into letting us do, do a full deal you know, now I can't even imagine that happen without any insurance issues, but, but I, I was just hooked. I remember, uh, you know, asking to sit in, uh, in the seat of a, you know, front engine dragster and just as a kid and just, I just loved it and grew up uh, doing that and, um, just got the racing bug. You know, my, my dad was into racing and my grandfather, who obviously after he got out of the service, built hot rods with my dad. And, um, you know, we just, we raced bicycles and we raced motorcycles and we raced, you know, we were, you know, just raced, you know, similar to you, Mike, it's, it's like, um, you know, you just wanted it to go fast. You know, I played football, I think for one year and, and loved it, but, you know, was not really much of a team guy and just, 
I just wanted to go fast, you know. <laughs> yeah, you so, got you got to tell me at least because I was some of Jeff was saying something about I'm not sure what Rick looks like. I says, well, he used to look. I think it's kind of went gray, but he used to have this bleach blonde hair. He was a surfer dude. He looked like he, he does. Yeah. He's got the West Coast look. He's Absolutely. a cool looking dude, you know. Yeah. So, did, did you ever well, do the be, surfing world any? Uh, yeah, I, I like the first time I ever stood up on a surfboard was I was probably twelve. I'm probably 12 or 13 years old in Seal Beach, California. And, and you know, one thing I, one thing I was always jealous about surfers is that it's relatively inexpensive. You know, I, I remember saving up and I think I got a surfboard for $75 and uh, it doesn't cost anything to go surfing. You know, you just got to hang out all day and learn. And, and I always, that's what I liked about it, but uh, you just can't go very fast or I shouldn't say I couldn't go very fast. I know guys are doing some big wave stuff. That's pretty crazy. But at the time it was, um, it was just all about motors, man. Yeah. And, and just the sound and the smell going fast. And so surfing um, is more sedate, you, you know what I mean? It's just like hanging out in the sunshine and waiting for the waves to get really rad. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean yeah, to kind of right. break, break the momentum of our conversation, but it just, <laughs> it, it always it would never surprise me if I seen Rick pull into a racetrack with like an old Woody's with two surfboards with hanging surfboards on top of you know like <laughs> that, that would that, be a great that, be like, an excellent idea for a photo shoot. So there you go, Rick. No extra charge <laughs> hey, for that. I, yeah. I, I, hey, I love old cars, and that, that may be an excuse to uh, to do something like that. But 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 I don't have a blonde hair anymore. But I I, I, I I've been fighting getting gray hair, so I call it. Battleship Blonde. Battle, Battleship Blonde. Well, that's good. It looks good. <laughs> kind of a, a gray blonde. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, you know, yeah, we definitely kind of had that whole California look. When I met, uh, uh, you know, met my wife, Lisa, I had hair down to my shoulders. And, you know, back then it was like the hair flying out of the back of your helmet. That was pretty cool, right? Because that's what all the motocross mm. guys, you know, had. And so, um, but, uh, you know, we um, – you know, I worked on my dad's cars for, for, uh, years and years and, and helped him. And, uh, he slowly, um, uh, got out of racing from a driving standpoint. And of course, you know, I was talking him, you know, into to, to quitting racing, <laughs> letting me race. And, um, you know, we used to run at Riverside a lot. Riverside was kind of like my home track and in California at the time before the land got so valuable, they started shutting everything down. Right. So when I was living out there, you had, um, Ascot and uh, the sprint cars and midgets, and you had um, the drag strips, you had Ontario, you had Riverside. And then overnight, land prices go up and everything starts closing up. But at Riverside, they ran you know, Formula cars and NASCAR and IMSA and Trans Am and motorcycles. <clears throat> so he had run, uh, he had gotten involved in road racing, and uh, he ran back in the Trans Am days. I got some really cool pictures of him qualified next to Roger Pinsky and the, uh, the, you know, the Sunoco Javelin, which is really cool because uh, I actually printed that picture and had Roger sign it at, at a homestead a couple of years ago because, you know, I remember going to those races at seven years old, the Trans Am deal with, you know, Fulmer and the factory, you know, Fords and the Chevys and the, the, the Mopars and the Javelins. And to even think that, you know, you know, what a fast forward 50 years that I'm going to be, you know, racing. I'm not going to say with Roger Penske, but racing against Roger Penske, you know, in the, in the same arenas anyway, it's just, it's really was kind of surreal, but you know, I, I grew up helping him. And uh, the first chance to run was um, at Riverside in 1983 in uh, November, 1983. And, that was the Warner Hodgson 300, and on Friday, uh, on, on Sunday was the Cup race, which was the Warner Hodgson 400, I believe. And so, well, sometimes it was the Winston Western 500, uh, possibly. But um, anyway, Warner Hodgson, he was some type of industrial guy or someone. He used to be on a yes. a Cup car back in the day. I remember. Yeah, he was. Well, for a while, he had. He was kind of like. Um, uh, oh, uh, he was like JD uh, Stacy uh, was for a while. His he, name no, no, really. no. He, he, yeah, he was a JD Stacy guy. He had Hodgson was on a lot of cars at one time, and um, and yeah, he sponsored Riverside uh, races and cars for I'm gonna say probably the better part of five to ten years. And so I mean, I think there's about 45 guys there, and it took 30, I think six on time, and um, we qualified sixth, I think, and. 
um, led the race and had a shot to win in my first time out, which is my first professional NASCAR race. And, um, I, I was still learning more about my racecraft. I was only, I was still a teenager, uh, and Herschel McGriff, who at the time, you know, he was a veteran even then, um, you know, he just, you know, outsmarted me and he, he won. I think we ended up finishing third with a pit stop issue, but I you know, learned a lot. And, you know, back then you had a, that was a great a finish, Rathens man. Get, thinking about that. Oh yeah. Third. No, it was, it was, it was great. And, um, you know, back then it was, a the Caval, cavalcade of speed or something. I think it was on TNN. And so it was like, man, you know, a televised race. It was, mm-hmm. it was really cool. And, um, actually I think, um, Kelly Yarborough was one of the commentators with Ken Squire and, um, uh, you, you know, um, you know, all the guys and, but it was really, it was great, but it just solidified the, you know, this is where I kind of want to be. I remember walking around after qualifying on a Friday, you know, walking over into the big show garage. Right. And, and I remember things that just stand out. Uh, I want to say it was the, I believe it was the first year um, and it might be off a year, but I believe it was the first year that Junior had the two-car Budweiser team. And I remember at the time, that was like unheard of, you know, to be there with two matching cars. And, and I remember hearing some number like it was, I don't know, two or three million dollars. And it was huge. And these guys had these big trailers. And it was just like, wow. And, um, you know, when you're growing up, you just, you just, you know, you're enamored with that. And, um, uh, so, you know, we just, you know, we did, it just cemented, you know, the continuation of wanting to race and California was a hotbed for a lot of racing, a lot of Indy cars, a lot of, a lot of cart teams, uh, were out there. So we were exposed to a lot and, um, was able to, um, uh, to do some, you know, multifaceted things. I remember we, I talked my dad into bar- to borrowing twenty five grand, which we had paid for a whole bunch of interest, and we built this formula car. And I, I got to build it next to um, uh, Danny and Gaius, uh, uh, not excuse me, uh, Danny Thompson, Mickey Thompson's um, uh, son. And we both raced. We went to the Long Beach Grand Prix, and my, my first ever open wheel race. It was the Saturday show before the kart race, and. Um, you know, I think we qualified sixth out of 30 cars and, and finished fifth. Uh, you know, so, so it, it was just an interesting, interesting place to be because there was a lot going on in California. Yeah, and it but, sounds like there not only was it interesting, but you had pretty good performance right out of the box and no matter what you drove. Right out the gate, yeah. yeah I mean, qualifying six of well, those races, finishing third, all of that's Driving yeah. a dragster when you're six? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Let, let's take a break, and we'll come right back, and we'll catch right back up We're there. talking to team owner from Rick Ware Racing. He's Rick Ware. And you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sports Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Our guest today, owner Rick Ware Racing. He's Rick Ware. Once again, Mike Wallace. Well, Rick, as we were talking going to break, you had been very successful in a few of your driving outings you qualified well you raced well you're out there in california where a lot of cool things were happening so what is the next progression from all that that's all going well where did, where and how did you proceed from there well so you know if uh if you're not full-time racing and you're picking and choosing you know seven eight nine races a year uh it, it's it's easy to focus on one thing um you know to kind of you know, you, you may be all in and you may spend everything plus X to go do it. And those are the, those are the, the kind of successful things that, you know, suck you into getting to the next level. Now, what had happened is, um, you know, we had gotten a little bit of a, a small prominence on the West coast of running stuff and, you know, uh, driving for some guys in NASCAR. And, you know, actually at that time, I still had not made an oval track debut, the debut, my, my, my first oval track, uh, driving was for a guy that got me some attention from the NASCAR race on the road course was the copper classic and the copper classic. Now uh, you probably remember Mike, you know, everybody back in the mid eighties came out there from the West coast. They, they ran the sprint cars, the midges, the supers and the stock cars. It was like a huge open cop deal. And there were, you know, 50 guys out there and uh, we barely made the show, but I made the show and I, think I finished 15th. 
the first year and I finished, I think, 10th or 11th the second year, which for a road race guy, that was that's a major accomplishment. Jeff, the, yeah. the Copper Classic that Rick is talking about was like the major winter series where all the heroes. Kenny Schrader was from our area, so Kenny Schrader would always go to the Copper Classic and run all the open wheel stuff, you know. And okay, uh, gotcha. it, it was it was just yeah. a famous race. It's really shocking that it's still not around because it was like the Chili Bowl, the Hoosier Hundred, all that combined into one race. winter heat. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was right, Rick. I mean, that's it know. was unbelievable. It was. Um... It was super fast. I mean, you know, back then the the um, they didn't so the rules for the stock cars were you had to have a full body. There's no minimum weight. You know, there's a lot of left side weight. Uh, heck, some of the the super modifieds were going as fast as probably to, to make the Indy car show. It, it was it was fast and relatively dangerous, but it, it was just it was the iconic of of every level of racer was there, and um, so. What happened is in the late 80s come and everything's closing up. There's nowhere to race. Uh, road racing had always been kind of a rich guy's deal, and you have to kind of um, leverage yourself to tag on to a, 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 a semi-pro to maybe go co-drive something. And, you know, we did a bunch of that. But that was closing up, and I can see where at this time in the late 80s, and I moved in 90, um, actually showed up. Uh, North Carolina, the uh, is April Fool's Day, 1990, my first day. I should have been a sign right there of this long 40-year April Fool's, 1990. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so that, that should have been. And, and I'd come back and forth multiple times trying to lay the groundwork down because I could see that, you know, you're going to have to make this change. If You're either going to have to go all in and um, – uh, and make the move. And so I didn't really know anybody, but I got to meet a few people. Uh, and I flew back and forth and, I, and uh, uh, got to meet Clyde Vickers, who at the time uh, was working for um, Howard uh, Stewart. Let me get back. Uh, yeah, yeah, Howard Stewart. And he, he was out uh, on the West Coast. And I met him through Barry Calvert, who was running J.E. Pistons, who I worked at J.E. Pistons in 1984, uh, making a living and learning about whatever. And, and I met him and and then Clyde had said, hey, you know, I'm going to – he came back, you know, year after year. And, of course, I'm always like, man, you need to try to find me a ride back there. And, you know, how many times do you hear that, right? It's like, yeah, whatever. You're in California. You know, it's, when you want to get real and be a race driver, you move east, right? And it's like, you know, easier said than done because I didn't know anybody. So then he, he was starting – he came back and he was starting CV products. And then he – I flew out and he introduced me to John Linville. Okay. So John Linville is – um um uh, you know, he, he ran. What was it? Was late model sportsman then? But that was basically the the, the, the forefront. To, John to push Linville is that, De, you know? Delana Harvick's dad, right? <laughs> Delana Harvick's dad. Can you believe that? Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I, I remember, I remember coming back and, and staying with John, and uh, uh, Delana was still going to. He just started high school, and, and I remember a couple times I took her to the mall in Winston. She didn't have a driver's license yet. And, and we went um, – uh, so, so I kind of put together a plan to move back. I'd rounded up. We had uh, uh, Otter Pops at the time in road racing, and they had gotten involved in IndyCar, and I, I convinced them to do some NASCAR stuff. And so I had just enough money to, like, be stupid enough to think that I could turn this into something, right? And so so I moved back, and I, and I lived with John Linville for a while, and um, uh, I started working on – he had – I think really, I think he only had two cars. And so we had to rebody a car, but so here's what happens. You start to, to, to work with people that really end up being somebody. Right. So obviously um, I started working with this guy. It was me and one other person, some guy named Todd barrier. And, and, Todd and we're barrier. working. Holy crap. We're working. Crew chief. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, um, Todd, Todd, uh, you know, he was at the heyday uh, over at RCR. Now he's kind of the right-hand guy, um, over at, at Gibbs. I mean, he's, the guy's brilliant, right? It's it just, he, um, and, and so at the time, you know, it was just me and him working and we're just, we're just two kids working and he's, uh, probably five or four or five years younger than I am, I think. And, and so we went to a couple, um, uh, Bush races. So my first Bush race ever was the, the Bush North South combination deal at, um, uh, Nazareth, I think is what it was. And, 
and uh, you know, um, uh, and I drove for Bobby Jones coming back with some auto- pop sponsorship in 1990. Bobby Jones was running the 22 car, which was a, a Napa plastic coat. Um, if you remember that car in Cup, and Rick Mass was driving full time. And there was a conflict, I think, at um, South Boston Speedway, and Rick was running the full schedule there. And so I got to go in that conflict, which was at Watkins Glen. And um, well, we broke the brakes off the car and didn't even finish. But, um, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to learn my craft and to meet people. Uh, so I'm kind of jumping around here because this is, this is why I'm moving in the process of moving back. And this, this is a funny story before I moved. It was, uh, I believe it was the end of 89. Clyde brought me back because Clyde was spotting for Jimmy means. And he brought me back to Bristol and I met Jimmy for the first time. And Jimmy's crew chief was Johnny Davis. And so, gosh, this is so the story. I'll tell you the story. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> so, so you can, well, first off, you got to remember in 1990, uh, uh, I need to say this correctly, but you know, the, the, you know, the South really just cared the, the Southern racers just cared about Southern races. They didn't need people coming from up North. They really didn't need people from California. And there was a lot of hardcore racers in the South. And so when you're coming back going, Hey, I'm coming back from California. I want to drive a race car. It's like, Nobody took you serious, and so if if you didn't move, and and you know move back here, and, and I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, I changed tires for you, Mike, because you were commuting, I think still from Missouri, and you and at a Big Ten race, and I, I changed, I think it was your right rear or left rear, I was down there trying to be a driver, and I was helping out, and I remember this this Wallace guy, he was like the next big thing. And, and like, well, I'm going down there and I, I, I changed tires for this guy, and, you know, <laughs> so, unreal. You know, so, kind of so, doing it all. So Rick, this was Mike's ego, like really huge at the time. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> hey, hey, Mike, Mike has always been bigger in life, not only in stature, but, but in his confidence. And I can tell you, I'm sure he, you know, he had a little bit, you know, to say he had, some doors open maybe because his last name he probably had as many clothes is, is open right so he still had to prove himself and he had i'm more glad that you realize that in. because yes sir I, yes. I, that's true no, very no, true no 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 i i do know that for a fact and uh what mike had that i didn't is that mike was already an accomplished oval track racer from where he came from i, I was this kind of guy trying to transition into into learning more about going oval track racing and knew just enough to be dangerous. And uh, l- mm-hmm. let's just say for sake of argument, I had some raw natural ability. And I say that a little tongue in cheek, but, but what I didn't know is the craft of oval track science um, in, in making it really work. Right. And so I had to, man, I had to get my butt handed to me, you know, over and over to, to learn this as, as we go. And, um, Mike can relate to this. I know Mike ran some big 10 races. So I had this wild hair of like, you know what? I don't know anything. I'm going to buy an old car. I'm going to set it up in crew chief it myself. And I think I'm going to go run this big 10 series. Now, Mike, you know, at the time when you were racing, there were three guys first off that owned that place. And it was Freddie Quarry, Richie Bickle and Jack Sprague. And then there would be a handful of guys like yourself that would come in from the outside and give everybody you know, a lot of, um, uh, competition, but that was a really unique click and I'm having to learn how to drive. I'm having to learn how to, to set a car up. And man, I can tell you, I got my butt handed to me, but it was a learning process. Right. And well, I let me interrupt you for a second there, Rick, just to let all our fans out there and Jeff, you know, it, the Big Ten race was a big series of races held at the Concord Motorsports Park, oh, or okay. Motor, Concord yes. Motorsports Speed. And if you've ever been to Concord, it's a weird-shaped racetrack to start with. But those three names that he mentioned there with, with Query, Bickle, and Sprague, they were the dominant guys. And they paid, those ten races paid big money back in the day to win. So if you re- went there and just kind of made the race and ran decent, it was a big deal. You ran the Big Ten. So just kind of setting the stage of how big a deal that was in this area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So, so go ahead there. Yeah. So we, um, uh, you know, so I, uh, you know, in between all of that, you know, I went and bought, um, uh, I got, you know, I just started hanging out and meeting people. Right. And, and, uh, um, you know, like you, Mike, <laughs> I walked into places and said, Hey, I'm a race driver. What can I do to drive your race car? Of course, you know, the, 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 the quick answer is, you know, how much money you got? And I'm like, uh, none. Right. And then I was there for several, I, I, I was back for several years. We ran a handful of races that first year. And it, it's tough when people that are already here, the running, you know, the running stuff, the, the run of the, the late model sportsman, which, um, for a while, the late model sportsman could also run in what became the Bush series. So a lot of guys had cars and they ran, you know, some of the, the races on and off and, so, you know, I, I started building some parts and coming up with some ideas and started building a lot of parts for a lot of people, including the CV products, and came up with ideas. So I was relatively um, sharp from the standpoint of knowing uh, knowing about cars and how to make some things better. So I designed some parts that, you know, got to be on a lot of late model stock cars. And, um, uh, you know, and Rick Townsend, rest in peace, was such a good guy. I built a lot of parts for, for Rick rick townsend and, and hubs and different stuff back in the day when he was really launching uh when, when he had bought um stock car products from tom hamilton out on the west coast which um which i also didn't realize started... rick townsend bought stock i thought i thought wasn't there a guy by the name of emmanuel zavakis or something that had something well, to do with okay, that okay. yes so so uh, uh we might have some old schoolers that, that may correct me in a time frame of how this happened so yes Emmanuel zavakis what was the the, the, the west uh, but he retired and what happened is now and i may be wrong on the timing but townsend i've always had townsend chassis but he kind of morphed and i believe at one point got the jigs and kind of got that whole territory okay, um, okay. But, but but yes yeah yes you you are correct and, and i and this is this is just, a, just another story so in 1983, um, you know, I'm trying to say, you know, hey, how can I be a race driver? So I'm like, well, I'm going to go to work for a race car guy. So I go to work for Tom Hamilton uh, in 1983. And Tom Hamilton was, uh, he had stock car products, and he was really kind of a stock car guru. He was one of the first guys um, really to have a nationwide a network of, of asphalt stuff. I know there's a lot of dirt guys that did stuff all over. But, you know, he had anything from pedals and rear ends and chassis. And, you know, he had even done some, I believe, some some cup stuff, which was Grand National at the time and sent stuff back. But uh, Tom had built the, the car that I finished third in uh, that he built for me and my dad. And then I went to work for him, uh, you know, working on um, uh, the, uh, you, know, you know, the lane, the turning center, building rear end stuff for him and, you know, building and bro broaching axles and just, you know, so I'm thinking I'm going to learn about racing. And well, first thing I learned is that Tom's a businessman and he, he didn't like racers working because racers wanted to take time off to go race. Right. So, you know, I tried to take some time off and, and, uh, um, went and did some racing and, and I'll never forget, uh, Bobby Allison walked in in 1980. Hold that thought on Bobby Allison. We'll be right we'll come back. back with more. We're talking to Rick Ware. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Our guest today, celebrating 40 years as a driver, a current owner of Rick Ware Racing. He's Rick Ware. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Rick, as we were talking, coming in, we were talking about Tom Hamilton and stock car products, and I just wanted to allude, when I lived in the Midwest, the stock car products magazine was, was just as famous as like a Sears and Robot catalog. As a racer, man, you wanted something from stock car products because it was so cool. But you mentioned something uh, going to break about Bobby Allison and, and his stock car products. What was that about? Yeah, well, so I'm trying to, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but, but I'm trying to just, you know, coming from where, uh, how I was kind of melded and molded into this, you know, I, I just got a head east kind of thing. And mm -hmm. and I was working, uh, and we were getting ready for the for the race in 83, which would have been, I guess, my first NASCAR race. And so Bobby Allison came in, and uh, that was the year he won the championship. And so back in the day, it, it opened and closed at Riverside, right? And, um, uh, and I believe it did even in, in 83, 84, I believe it did as well. Uh, it was the last race of the season. 
And so obviously I got to, got to meet Bobby. Who's this, you know, bigger than life guy. And of course, anybody that's had the pleasure of meeting him, he was for a guy that was at the, 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 the top of his profession, so down to earth. And, you know, he's just, just the, the, the greatest guy. And, it just solidified more that, you know, it's just some way, somehow, you know, I want to be uh, a race driver and, you know, never, never dreamed or wanted to be an owner because it's, it's about racing. I mean, you know, um, uh, owners are for people that don't make it as drivers. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of how I morphed into it. But at the time, you know, you gotta be you know single-minded. And so uh, I learned a lot about the racing business from Tom uh, being able to meet guys and see the relationship that he had because he was actually building a lot of stuff for some of the teams. And I think a lot of people didn't even know it from back East. And it just, all of these things, uh, it was, they made indelible impressions on my mind and, and just the cool factor of wanting to be in this industry, in this world. And, you know, at, at the same, at the same time, understand, um, you know, California, California, uh, had so many uh, field drag teams, IndyCar teams, off-road teams. And uh, at the time, Firestone was still really prevalent in, in NASCAR, not so much in Grand National, but in, in all other forms. And I remember going and getting our Firestone tires because we ran – my dad ran Firestones even, I think, until um, June of 83 and before we switched to Goodyear. And I went down to pick them up at Vels Parnelli Jones – um, and you go down there, huge warehouse tires, but Parnelli's roaming around and he's got his, um, uh, he's got his Indy cars there. He has his famous Ole Bronco there. Uh, I remember this guy named Larry Slutter, who, who was a huge motor builder back in the day. I remember this Offenhauser back in the dino room, glowing red, getting ready to go to Indianapolis, right? Um, watching these things. And, and of course, you know, Parnelli did a little bit of NASCAR stuff, just like Dan Gurney did. And it, it was just, it was a really unique time. If I was in the movie business, I, I guess it would be like the equivalent of, uh, you know, Hollywood when it, when it, the golden when it took era, off. right? They call the, it. The, the golden era, because you know, I remember meeting Danny and Gaius when Danny and Gaius ran, funny cars for Mickey Thompson, but he, you know, transitioned into road racing for Ted Fields uh, with Interscope, who's a big movie producer. And then he ended up running Indy cars. And, you know, that was back when race drivers just drove race cars. They weren't really, you know, they weren't sprint car guys, Indy car guys, um, you know, stock car guys. They kind of did a lot of different things. So it, it, it got me just enough, uh, information to be kind of confused as to which way to go, right, to make a living. But um, but again, fast forward, I could see the volume of races. I could see where sponsors were ending up. Um, you know, obviously the big sponsors are up front, the smaller sponsors are in the tail. But, you know, there were 43 cars every weekend in an NASCAR race. And so by doing simple math, in theory, there's more opportunities, you know, to, to, make, to make a living, you know. And so now – as we all know, Mike, once you show up back here, you know, there's 40 guys every weekend at every short track with the same idea. And so, um, but it, it's the driving force to fast forward, get back to, you know, the nineties and coming out here. Okay. Um, Rick, I, I got a question. Jeff's going to answer the question because once I look at him, he's going to know what the, the question we ask everybody. He says, get back. Did you, did you drive over here or did you fly over here from California on your final time coming? <laughs> So I had a I had a 16 foot uh, just a short little 16 foot outboard boat that um, I used as a trailer, and I had a a, a short bed um, 350 red Chevrolet pickup truck. You knew what the and question was going to be, didn't you? Oh, absolutely, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. It, it was it was loaded to the gills, and. Uh, my mom was living in Texas, and of course, you, you, you know, you know, you, you, the advantage of having a mom that loves you is, that, you know, she thinks you're bigger than life. And and I got her to fly out, and she drove back with me. And I remember about spinning out, going through the snowstorm, heading uh, through the pass on I-10, and and uh, you know, all just craziness all the way out. And and I, this is how naive I was. And I traveled a fair amount going racing in the Midwest and stuff. But I remember stopping and making a call 
to Lenville, John Lenville, when I got to Tennessee, because, you know, Tennessee is right next to North Carolina, right? So I'm like, hey, I'm already in Tennessee, man, you know, and he's like, wow, man, I made really good time. Well, nine hours later, I'm still in Tennessee, right? (laughs) Kind of like going through Texas. So you must have stopped in Memphis and made that call. (laughs) No, no. I'm just like, Tennessee border, man, we're making killer time. But, yeah, it's like the first time I, I got to El Paso. And like a day and a half later, I got to Houston, right? So, um, so, so anyway, so coming back, so yeah, I was loaded up, um, um, and uh, it was, I don't know, you can do those things when you're, you're, it sure helps to be ignorant because if you really thought long, like, what are you going to do a month or six months from now? Because I literally did not have really that planned. And, um, you know, it, it um, you just you had know, failure was not an option. I was going to say, get a real well, trailer. How about that? Instead of a boat. You can appreciate this. So I, 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 I needed to get a trailer and, uh, but I needed a big trailer. So I got a 30 foot tag along trailer that, that I used to take all the way to Kinley to, to um, uh, Southern national and a Concord. Of course, my tr- pickup truck literally is 16 feet long. And I remember having to, you had to make sure to put on the trailer brakes early and then squeeze on because that thing wanted a jackknife all the time. And I always, I'd always joke that the real driving wasn't at Concord or Kenley. It was freaking getting to and from and, and, and not wrecking this thing. But, but I, I used that to um, pull everything I had for a long time. And, um, and uh, I, I, I probably learned my most. Uh, I had Richie Bickle was building cars in Concord. You probably remember that, Mike. Yeah. And uh, um, Richie built me a car. And um, the, the best I'd ever finished at Concord was was third. And that wasn't in a Big Ten, but I was in a regular weekly show. But again, you know, I don't get beat by the guys we're talking about. But um, Southern National was just built. And you know, um, you know, Mike, Concord, they changed the old oval into this trial. And, and it was such a bizarre setup to get a car to work because you're flat out from the exit of one into three. And if you couldn't quite get it, and you're just out to lunch. Could never really quite get it. Anyway, so I, I bought a car, and um, one of my neighbors in Greensboro was Ken Glenn, who was the head engineer over at Roush at the time. And, and, and that was back in the era when Roush was building the trick stuff and, and, you know, shocks were coming into play. And he taught me, uh, you know, he taught me how to build shocks. And I started selling Penske shocks and got the first set of Penske shocks raced on a late model stock car. And, you know, now that's the, the regular scenario that, and the first CNR radiator. those are the two things that I brought into late model stock car racing. And I got to learn a lot about racing, building, and and running this car. So we went to – I remember going to Southern National, and I I really started learning about setup. I did all my own setups, built all my own shocks, and there's no external adjustments back then. So uh, my wife was pregnant. Lisa was pregnant with with Cody. And I remember her helping me, you know, try to to get my car loaded up – uh, went there down there by myself, took care of all the stagger. But I learned a lot about cars. I remember uh, we, we set the uh, the track record, which I think I, I think officially for the racetrack, I think actually still stands because the track has gotten a lot slower because when it was new, it had the um, concrete corners. And back then, we ran open motors, right, with big carburetors. So they were, they were freaking fast. But I remember taking the shocks apart in between practice and qualifying and – um, adding some more rebound because the car was a little tight getting into the corner. So I put some more rebound in the left rear, fricking sit on the pole, check out. But I remember people looking at me like they had three heads. They're like, what are we doing? And I'm just like going. But what it taught me, it just taught me the, the dynamics of working on a car. And um, I got the car to work so good. And you, I'm sure, been in this situation. Some of the worst, the hardest driving is driving a a 20th place car to 10th, right? I, I got the car, learned how to make a car work um, to where, you know, probably anybody that was there that weekend could have won with it. That's how good I got it. But so I really learned a lot. This would have been in 90, 
four. And so um, that just kind of helped me go to the next level. And and then I made the the the, the racers want to step up. So I, I bought a a bush car um, uh, from a gal that had run the bush races with um, Randy McDonald in 1995. And, um, you know, what happens there is now you step up to the real world and, um, you know, you, you start getting your butt kicked on a pretty regular basis from, from there on out. You know? I, I got to share the story with you, Rick. I, and again, this shows all about you, but we'll interject a little bit. One, just the way you just said that. So back in 1991, I had got, uh, Jeff Henrick, I got the opportunity to go run a bush cart. I went to Lanier, Georgia. Mm-hmm. It was my very first race. I, I take that back, a second race. And I run third in the race. David Green won. Some kid by the name of Jeff Gordon ran second. And I go. ran third. <laughs> All right. Right? That's good company. Yeah. It's hey, like, he, it, he's going to be somebody someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it screwed up. I thought I was going to be somebody, you know, but he, uh, he proved us all wrong. But the end result was... Then we went to Atlanta, and I sat on the front row of an ARCA race, and I thought, what is the big deal about this? This stuff is easy. Yeah, right. Right? Then then reality, it was like, <laughs> what's the show, The Roadrunner, where the amble falls off the deal, hits him in the oh, head, yeah. and flattens like, yeah. okay, you got sense now? So I'm sorry. I didn't mean well, to interrupt, you, but that's just no, what but, it reminded me of. Problem. I had all of the cockiness in the world, or confidence, yep. not cocky confidence, and then real-life world set in as you went bush racing, you know, you were saying. Well— so, so what happens is, you know, is that you sit, you know, you sit down with you and your buddy or your family, whatever you think, Hey, we can go, I, I, we're going to get this guy to build a motor or we're going to build this car. And the problem is when you step up, you don't ever factor in, let's just say you had a good program. Who's going to call the strategy and who's ever, I, 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 I used to never think about the pit stops. I'm working on the car and driving. And then it was always like, I don't care how fast you are. If you don't have a pit crew, you're screwed. And that's the next – all of these things just uh, – it's like stacking tolerances. They just get worse and worse and worse when you realize you don't really have the whole program together. And, um, you know, it, it – uh, I remember my first Archer race was 95. And I'm not so sure that you weren't in that race. But but it was 95, and we, um, we qualified 24th or 22nd or something like that. It doesn't sound good, but there were 52 cars there trying to get in. Mm-hmm. And so we, we just made it on time. Like we're the last, you know, we barely make it because there's a bunch of provisionals and stuff. We barely make it, but we ended up breaking a rocker arm, but still finishing ninth. I think I finished behind um, uh, uh, Dave Blaney, and he was driving for that, the, the Ohio guys that had the yep. sprint car team. And, and I think. I think uh, Mike Skinner won with the children's car, right? And I remember thinking, well, hey, you know, we can kind of maybe do this. And, you know, racers are the worst liars to themselves because they convince, you convince yourself that you're going to be the one guy in this whole world that's going to carry this whole thing, right? <laughs> and, and it just – it, it kind of sucks you to that next level. And um, it, uh, it it's just tough, man. It is just – so tough. And, you know, you give up running these big races to get to the quote big show. You give up running a volume of smaller races. And it's pretty tough to make a name for yourself if you're trying to run five or six races a year, because short of winning it, everybody's racing all the time. And, you know, what you did two months ago, well, that's eight or nine races ago. Hold, just, hold that thought on those eight or nine races, and we'll come back. Speaking of the big show, the big time, Rick Ware is going to take us there. <laughs> Next, you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the SpeedSport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. <laughs> Welcome back to the SpeedSport Podcast Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're talking to team owner Rick Ware Racing. Rick Ware on the line. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Rick, as a good show goes, we're going to run out of time before we get everything. So we're going to do a segment, too, sometime. But I, first of all, got to take a minute and do a a sincere apology. I got a note here. In the first part of the show, I, I, I said your wife's name wrong. It's Lisa. I think I said Lori. Why I said that, I have no idea. Because I've known Lisa forever. She's such a wonderful person. I mean, she's beautiful. She's got a great personality. So 
Tell her if she listens to this, accept my apology. It's coming in the fourth part of the show. Well, if she listens, you <laughs> no just apologize. Problem. Yeah, so, so Lisa, no I problem. love you, honey. Just... All right, so oh. fast-forwarding to that point, you've done some bush racing. It's, you know, you're you're trying to get going. You And somewhere along the line, you truck race, and I think you something happens. T- tell, t- pick us up yeah. there. Well, so fast forward, so we, I, I try to put together some truck stuff and start to run um, the truck series in 2000. And 2000, uh, and at the same time, you know, as soon as you become a, a team owner is the beginning of your probably your career as a driver starts to slowly wane. And I just couldn't do, couldn't do it all. Um, I, I had, a, I had a, an injury that happened do the season and I missed a couple races. Um, and it, it had a couple other guys drive and I got back in the car and, um, the, the last race of the year was Fontana. And, um, it was the first time that ever in my mind, it's like, man, I just wasn't excited about going. It was a long, tough, hard year. And the weekend before, um, uh, my family was out of Texas watching us race and um tony roper uh, got in that horrific wreck and on the front stretch and ultimately ended up passing away and two other times earlier that year um you know we lost kenny Irwin and we lost um uh, adam as well and so it was a really tough it was a really tough year so at, at, at the end of 2000 uh, i'd lost uh, my sponsorship i had sponsorship with um uh, Dunlop Golf and the golf company, and we leveraged a bunch of things with, you know, uh, um, uh, sporting goods stores, et cetera, but, but it was done. So um, we blew a, a tire at – I ended up going to Fontana. It last race of the year. Um, blew a right front tire, sway bar bolt cut into it, uh, a truck we just built, and, you know, a mistake that happened pretty prevalent at the time with where the sway bars were uh, slammed turned to wall and just um had a horrific uh wreck like a lot of people had that year before the soft walls and pause devices etc and, and uh ended up messing up my um uh, t4 five and six or five six and seven um shoved some disc into my uh spinal sack and anyway long story short um probably was going to uh, have some uh career ending issues if i ever had a wreck like that again and so um after several uh, sent in the ICU and neurosurgeon telling me we probably ought to not be doing this. Uh, I had to make some really tough decisions and it was either step back, um, have some major surgery and halos and all these kind of things, or kind of morph into the ownership. And, um, as soon as I kind of put the word out that I wasn't driving, we had drivers with funding that wanted to potentially go race. And, uh, so I had to think long and hard and, it was either that or get a real job and uh, i didn't really know anything other than racing so that's kind of as far as rick Ware racing uh morphed uh into that at that particular point as we kind of know it in the nascar realms you know our um well let me uh, fast forward this conversation a little bit because i'm scared i'm going to run out of time so a lot of people most of the race world is familiar with rick Ware racing okay because for a period of time you set a new standard especially when this i'll call it charter system come about and maybe one day you can come back on and explain that to us because i'm still confused over that whole thing mm-hmm. but you, you were running multi-cars i mean you were a multi-car team moment how did it advance into just a guy wanting to be a race car driver to a t- team owner to a multi-car cup team owner um, I'm going to, I'll try to hurry really quick. The biggest thing is if you don't have a business where you just take a chunk of money and put it in the bank, a couple things happen. You got to keep feeding this black hole of, of pay of bills as fast as you can. Now, if you run one truck and it brings in X and you can't pay all your bills, then maybe you could run a second truck. Because your economy of scale, be, it's not twice as expensive. It might be one and a half times expensive. But now you can you can get two drivers, two sets of funding, offset costs. We were the first. Um, we were actually were the first team to ever bring four cars to um, 
the, the truck series. And it was in Fontana, I believe, in 2001. Uh, and we had to qualify on time because guys were going home every single race. Uh, we made a gear. Uh, we actually had a gear problem and, and missed the race. And so we raced three. Um, but what I learned then is that you always have to have a regular amount of cash flow coming in from sponsorship. Uh, and I couldn't ever make it work with one car. And it's always been a little bit of a battle of trying to concentrate, getting to the next level, but also surviving. Cause understand I'm having to pay payroll every Monday or line up payroll to cover payroll for Friday. And, um, he got some sort of a living, you know, and at the time, you know, I now have a, a kid on the way. And so that, that's how that morphed. And as it, as it gets into the cup deal, uh, and first you have to understand we went Xfinity racing and, and sent some really good marks that I was proud of at Xfinity and then toyed with the cup several times, uh, trying to do some things. Um, and that's, that is a pretty in-depth conversation, man. And I, more than happy to come back and you're, you're to invited to come back place. okay so we know that we're going to do <laughs> right. that okay so so but however you can fast forward into the cup world because i mean there's been a lot of conversation about the charter systems rick Ware racing the positioning of rick Ware racing i'm excited for you i'm happy for you i've known you for a long time so i've seen all the work and effort it takes and uh, again, you, you were one of the first, other than a couple of the mega teams that had multi cars. Yes. So, um, you know, we were pretty aggressive uh, 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 when the opportunities were somewhat realistic. And uh, I guess a, one thing that needs to be said is people need to understand that at the time, charters were, were less money, but people were selling charters because they didn't want to run the car at that particular time. You have to remember children sold a charter. Um, Roush sold a charter. Uh, I ended up leasing a charter right first. I didn't buy a charter. I leased a charter because Petty didn't have the funding to run, um, you know, to run their car, right. Their, their second car. Uh, and so what, what was interesting is, is that the people that, that have just all got charters here in the last several years, you know, some of the new guys that are in, whether it's the, the colleagues or the, the, the Justin Marks and, and, and some of these guys, um, they, they all had interest in charters, I think, even two, three, and four years ago and five years ago. The problem is, is it wasn't the acquisition of the charter. It was how do you go race these cars? And these guys want to race them at a level of we're here to, to – to, we are trying to do it. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it with the funding to go win. And now that's $30 million a year. So even if you bought a charter for a deal, you have to be able to go race these things. And so the, the reason the charters were available is that nobody had the funding at that particular time to run at a certain level. So uh, Rick Ware didn't get these charters because like, oh, you know, heck, everybody wants to do something for Rick Ware. No, I, they had talked to a bunch of different people, and I was the guy willing to take that risk to figure out a way to do it. Now, again, understand I'm uh, not independently wealthy, and it is tough running these cars and having to generate sponsorship, even with uh, the, the, the charter income. And understand, I didn't take money from another account and go just buy a charter. We had to finance these things. So I'm servicing debt, and I'm growing. I, I've had to grow every aspect of this uh, organically. And, um, you know, going into the things that we do in the other series – uh, actually, using this as an example, th this off season, you know, we have money coming in from our top fuel program in the off season. We have money coming in from the World Supercross for the off season, and the same thing for this IMSA. We're not going to get. We're still a ways off of getting any funding coming in from on our NASCAR side. So, all I worry about is to continue to make sure that we are growing every aspect. And I'm fast-forwarding here because we've really tried to elevate our NASCAR program exponentially. I mean, we are spending a lot of money. All these other series, um, it's important as I grow RWR, they need to be competitive. And we are we are competitive in EMSA. We are competitive in Top Fuel. We are competitive in, in, in you know, the World Supercross. We are trying to be more competitive in NASCAR. But I will tell you, it's the hardest series on the planet. Um, not Formula One doesn't run against 40 other cars every weekend. 
it is very tough and understand our our budget is dramatically off what it takes to even run 25th a 25th place average car every weekend is running you know I'm not, tens plural tens of millions more but maybe 10 10 15 million more so it, it, it takes time and so that's the short story but there's a lot of really interesting stories in between i can promise you that well we certainly need to get into those stories at some time we want to have you back but i want to enhance what i do know and i've read and you can uh, rwr is working really hard to enhance their cup program you created a real alliance an additional technical alliance this year. And if I've read right, and correct me, you moved your cars even over on RFK campus, which is Ross Fenway Keselowski program with the Ford ties. Uh, what do you think that's going to bring to you? And, and did I read that right? Is Are you got your cars over there now or are they somewhere else? Or Yes. Yeah, so um, our cut program last year, we have, we have probably about five different shops, but our two main shops, one shop has the, the um, the top fuel, the IMSA, and the World Supercross. The other shop w- is solely um, uh, the, the Cup program, and it's been in Denver, North Carolina. Uh, we had uh, a different alliance last year, and we weren't. Uh, it just didn't meld as well. We weren't as valuable because they were a four car team. Uh, I'd you know run in and talk to Brad several times about you know hey what do you think if we did this and here's what we could bring to the table and they're a two car team and now we can act a little bit like a four car team and, and, and it works in different scenarios so the difference is by being uh, you know we're on the we're on the far side of the road you know on the other end of their cup program but to be on their facility on their campus it it gives us more live information. When we go to these tracks and we only have 15 minutes of practice, you remember, Mike, in your day, you, you were there unloading. Heck, sometimes you were there on the track Thursday, but for sure all day Friday, and you, you're throwing springs at it, and all day Saturday and Sunday. Well, now, um, think, uh, heck, we're going all the speedway races, including Atlanta. We don't even practice. We go straight to qualify. So yeah, all Jeff, of the it, work Jeff can't, isn't that hard to believe? They just unload them things and race them. I know. I mean, it used to, it, it, it's, it used to be, I mean, and fans would go watch practice and they would, you know, I mean, we'd yeah, go down there, right? And, spend the whole weekend. Yeah. And we, and we learned a lot from COVID, you know, we had no practice. And so I remember having friends and, um, uh, you know, talking to some of the guys on uh, the IndyCar program and they couldn't even fathom unloading and going to race it. And, and most series can't, but we didn't have any choice. NASCAR did a fantastic job in COVID. We're the only sporting series in the world to run their full schedule and their playoffs. You know, so kudos to them. But to do it, we didn't practice. And now, so think about the quality of of just the preparation and people it takes to no practice and run four and five hundred miles. Um, I, I think, I, I believe every car finished the six hundred, maybe one, you know, other than a, than a wreck. Uh, but maybe even including that, I mean, nobody's falling out from failures or from, you know, bad preparation. So uh, we learned something there, right, that it can be done. But my point being is that you really have to have your program together when you unload. You, you unload and the the pitch isn't right with the car, which is incredibly important now with the flat bottom, um, you know, the way the splitter is. You can't rub, but if you're too high, you're going too slow. So all these things are increasingly more important. And we're still on a huge learning curve. So to learn something two or three races down the road, especially if you're running three different races in a row, if you go to, you know, we're going to Daytona, then we're going to a two-mile, then a mile and a half, and then Phoenix. Well, in theory, whatever you learned, we're not going to come back to that kind of track until, you know, maybe – three or four or five or six or eight races down the road, we can't be that far behind. We've got to get more information. We've got to get a more real time. Um, you know, we're going to have some embedded engineers that correspond, you know, race weekends. So, um, you know, we're trying to step up to this next level, but we couldn't take advantage of that two years ago, Mike, because we didn't have a full lease program and we couldn't have all these things. So we're a small team, but we still have several engineers and now we have a good pit crew and, and, and now we're, we have all the tires that we need and we're leasing motors from Doug Yates. And so you keep adding these things because two of any of these three or four things, you're still going to get your butt handed to you. 
you know, you need all of these things together. And heck, you still might get your butt handed to you, but at least you're going to be more competitive. You're going to be closer and you're at least showing up to a gunfight with at least some kind of some bullets you know, in the gun, uh, right? There you go. <laughs> some kind of bull- or, or or at least some gunpowder. You know, yeah. You're at least showing up with something to make some noise. You may not hit anybody, but you're gonna make some noise. Well, Rick, we're gonna have to have you back. Okay, we've run out of time, unfortunately. I appreciate it. We've jumped all around, and I think we could talk for three or four hours on your program. So accept our invite when we call you. Please tell Lisa. I love her. <laughs> I did absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and hey, she loves you. And, and I, I got to get back because because you got to remember between truck and Xfinity and Cup, I got some cool Mike Wallace stories oh. uh, that involve your daughter and you. And and, and I will say to date, um, you know, my, you know, unfortunately in, in our career, my wife has cried a fair amount at the at, at, at the races, but she cried a lot when you and I missed the show because of a spark plug. For the Daytona 500, when you were wheeling the heck yeah, out of my car, we, we so I, I respect you immensely, and uh, you know that. And we were going to have you back on, Jeff. I think it's until great. he said the, he was going to bring up the Mike Waddle stories. Now yeah. he's not coming. But back. real quick, Rick, <laughs> may, may, make it in one minute. Tell everybody again the series that Rick Ware Racing is running, the different ones, and where they can find more information out about your organization. Yeah, the. Uh, uh, I think, um, you know, I think it's, uh, where, uh, Rick Ware racing on Instagram and, uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we, we, um, uh, we're the rating champs. We, we won the, uh, the inaugural season of the world supercross, uh, championship. And we'll be, um, going back, uh, in the 250 to four, uh, 450 this year. Uh, it kicks off 4th of July in, in Europe. And it's an eight, uh, I think it's in six different countries. Uh, we're running, uh, for the top fuel world championship with Clay Milliken. And we finished uh, eighth in points this year ahead of uh, some, you know, major hitters like uh, Coletta's and Tony Stewart and Schumacher's and those guys. And uh, we're running for the championship in LMP2 in IMSA. We got uh, Austin Sendrick um, and um, Pietro Fittipaldi, who Pietro drove for me in an IndyCar a couple of years ago. And then we have last year's two winners, Eric Lux and Dublin D. Francesco, who runs full-time in IndyCar for Andretti. Uh, so we got a good lineup for the 24. And um, we have two full-time cup cars. And um, right now, that's that's going to keep us pretty busy. And yeah. you know, we, we feel we're a great value for sponsors. And we cross-pollinate all our sponsors. And per dollar, we're the best deal out there. Well, Rick Rare. Jeff Kent and I appreciate it. There you go, absolutely, and good luck down there at the Rolex Twenty Four. That's only two weeks away, Mike. You realize that? Yeah. Right? How do I'm trying to figure out how we become a team member with like an hour to go, and they know they're going to win the race? Like we get one of them Rolexes. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, believe me, that, that uh, I would I would love to get one of those. And, yeah. And but I think my. My wife has only made the comment it might be cheaper just to go buy one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it absolutely <laughs> would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, but, uh, you know, no, I, so that would be uh, really awesome. Uh, awesome to get. So we're excited to do that. And Jeff, thanks for having me on too. And uh, uh, let's uh, let's get back on. And we got, uh, I think we got, we probably got two more hours of stories. So I'm pretty confident. Outstanding. Right. We look forward to that. There goes Rick Ware. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.